Okay, everybody. Keeping us relatively to time, um, I hope you're feeling a little refreshed and ready for a... There we go. It's, it's all right. Don't, <laughs> no panic. Um, so welcome back, everybody, for the last part of the afternoon where we're going to have a, a, another wonderful panel and then something very special from the family. Um, I have to say that this afternoon's been very interesting to explore from a couple of perspectives of people who benefited from the poetry circle, if you like, of the network that Peter created, but also now we're extending our conversation to those perhaps with a, another and perhaps a broader range of different interests to give us some sense in which the, the scope of this archive reaches out um, and intersects with kind of artists of different kinds and people of different kinds and opens opportunities to researchers in all kinds of fields, not just poetry, uh, probably social history, cultural history, um, and certainly that transnational history that we've been talking about as well. Adrian Caesar is going to chair our discussion and he's joined by Roger Cavell, Morag Fraser and Darlene Bungie. Formerly Associate Professor of English at New South Wales University at ADFA, Adrian now splits his time between his own writing and teaching creative writing at ANU. He's had several books of literary criticism and poetry published and his non-fiction novel, The White, won the Victorian Premier's Award for Non-Fiction and the ACT Book of the Year in 2000. Roger Cavell is one of Peter's oldest friends. He certainly says he's the oldest in the room. <laughs> but, and I have to say that I had the great privilege of speaking very recently to launch Roger's own archive um, on the celebration of his 85th birthday. And he says, and Peter was older than I was, so <laughs> there you go. Um, but that day, actually, we closed Roger's commemoration sort of celebration day um, with actually something from Peter Porter's own archive, which was a tribute to Roger Cavell. So I think this is a beautiful day of a return gesture, Roger. And uh, I have no doubt you have many things to tell us. If you don't know about Roger, of course, he was the principal music critic at the Sydney Morning Herald for more than 50 years and began his uh, critic career in Brisbane with Peter. Um, and he remains as Emeritus Professor in the School of English Media and Performing Arts at the University of New South Wales, also made a member of the Order of Australia in 2011 in recognition of his service to music. Morag is a writer, newspaper columnist and one of Australia's most experienced literary commentators. She was, of course, the editor of Eureka Street magazine for 13 years from 1994 and published Peter Porter in Eureka. Um, she said, however, we didn't talk about poetry, we talked about music and art, the real point of our connection and our conversation. Um, she too has, uh, is a member of the Order of Australia and is a former adjunct professor in the humanities and social sciences at La Trobe University and of course has judged, been on many, many judging panels um, around Australia for literary awards and now chairs the Australian Book Review. You don't. Stop. Out of date. And, <laughs> sorry about that. Darlene's been an advertising copywriter, associate editor and writer for British magazines, a freelance journalist and book reviewer. Her biography of Arthur Boyd was published to critical acclaim in 2007 and it was during the research for that, this book that she first met Peter and was the beginning of an enduring friendship. 
This biography was joint winner of the Fellowship of Australian Writers National Literary Award for non-fiction in 2007 and won the Australian Book Industry Award for Biography of the Year. Her biography of artist John Olson, published in 2014, was co-winner of the Prime Minister's Literary Award for non-fiction. So you can see our interests are ranging um, wide this afternoon and I'll hand over to Adrian to introduce his relationship with Peter and then the panels. Thank you. Thanks, um, Robin. Uh, I'd like to begin by saying what a privilege it is to take part in this event, just as it was a privilege to be a friend of Peter's. I first encountered Peter when I was a 19-year-old undergraduate at the University of Reading, and my teacher, Ian Fletcher, put on an exhibition at Reading University Library called The Group, and um, invited Peter and Alan Brownjohn and George Macbeth to read at the university. And this was the first time I'd ever met real poets. And I was totally uh, awe-stricken, to the point of total silence. <laughs> I listened to this brilliant conversation going on and thought, wow. Um, and it wasn't really until the 1990s and my friend and colleague Bruce Bennett brought Peter and I together and um, we had a great friendship from then on. Um, and as I said to Morag earlier at lunchtime, it, it's something of an irony, I think, that my friendship with Peter made me f feel uh, I could be at home in London in a way I'd never been able to before, even though I was born in Lancashire. Somehow, Peter and London have become inseparable in my mind uh, through our wonderful lunches where we'd meet at the Museum Tavern, progress to Pizza Express, <laughs> and from there, inevitably, to Brown's. Uh, and um, wonderful conversation. And um, I'd just also like to say, as many other speakers have, um, to recognize Peter's enormous warmth and generosity. Um, he encouraged me to keep writing uh, at moments when I thought I would give up. He kept encouraging me to please myself through my writing. And he, as Gig said, I want to reinforce it, I think he was obviously, as everybody has recognized, the most wonderful talker, but he also was a wonderful listener. And it, you always knew he was gonna respond precisely to what you were saying to him. And he was warm-hearted and generous uh, to me to a fault. Anyway, I will not go on about my relationship with Peter any further right now, but hand over to Roger Cavell, who I might say uh, recently, in a recent tribute to him, he was described as a national treasure and a living legend um, <laughs> in a recent uh, uh, appreciation of his work at the University of New South Wales. And so it's, uh, it's an honour to hear him. Over to Roger. Now, the uh, first thing I'd like to uh, draw attention to is Peter's habit 
of learning um, a subject in, in series or in parallels, uh, which I first encountered uh, when we first met, which was in 1948. And that's nearly 70 years ago. It could have been earlier, but because we both went to the same primary school in Annerley, Brisbane, but it was a big school. There were about 100 students, uh, 1,000 students, I should say. And um, he was two years older than I was, so of course we had no com contact. But uh, Peter, I heard in uh, the office of, I think it was, may have, well, it doesn't matter where it was, uh, but I heard him talking about Mozart, and as I had been spent my youth being musically trained and thinking that I knew far more about music than anybody else that you could possibly meet, uh, I was a little piqued to discover that he had a knowledge of the Mozart piano concertos, the 12, that is, that were then available in the primitive recording world of that time, 1948, um, he knew their cursal numbers, he knew what the themes were for each movement, and he knew exactly when they'd been written and whether there was anything remarkable about them. I felt a little annoyed by this because <laughs> I didn't know it as well as he did. However, we got on very well, and when I first went to his house where his, he lived with his father, uh, I was a little amazed to hear him trying to give me a systematic and thorough uh, account and analysis of the Biggles aviation books uh, <laughs> written by Captain W.E. Johns. I don't know if you ever came across them. But they were very uh, much a, a part of English. Um, and here? Not to me. And I was not interested in, uh, in having this account. But, so I declined politely. But at the same time, he showed me a big tray he had of dinosaurs of various periods uh, on a large tray in plasticine, which he had made himself. And you may think there's nothing remarkable about that. He was then, uh, he was probably about 19, I was 17. And, but in those days, uh, dinosaurs weren't nearly the rage that they've become since. <laughs> and I look on him as a harbinger of that uh, particular <laughs> development in popular culture. But his... His way of learning these things, the Mozart uh, 12 recorded piano concertos, the dinosaurs, even Captain W.E. Johns's masterpieces, these were all learnt in a thorough way so that at any moment he could call up which story or which dinosaur or which um, person he was talking about or which piano concerto he was listening to. And that is a remarkable thing uh, which went on throughout his life. Uh, later, for example, there was the whole world of the Bach um, cantatas, uh, which gave him umpteen 
opportunities of developing systems of comparison and accumulation. And uh, I think that that was the, the real basis of his uh, learnedness, if I can put it that way, of his having a reputation for great uh, knowledge and learning. And I'm not trying to undercut what he did know, but I can affirm that as we sat together sharpening our thorn needles and putting on umpteen 78 RPM records, which was all that was available then, uh, and then making at least 30 changes of record in a uh, Mozart opera or a number in any sort of work, uh, and learning the repertoire that we didn't already know, the, for example, the Glyndebourne Mozart recordings, um, and so on, that this was um, something that gave us a common heritage. And we, we heard, uh, for the first time, the early works of Benjamin Britten, and we were absolutely in agreement that Music had never, certainly not British music, had never tackled the setting of words in such a way as happens in The Rape of Lucretia, um, where Tarquinius' uh, uh, horse ride to Rome um, is given a flexibility of rhythm and a force and power that has never been, had never been. Uh, equaled in, in, certainly in English music, but in hardly any other music either. And I can remember the exact moment when we discovered W.H. Auden, which has been referred to more than once quite rightly here. And it has an effect on Peter at first, which was rather alarming in that it made him feel that he'd done nothing. Of course, he was only 19. Um, <laughs> And that it never would be any, uh, he would never achieve anything because he wasn't part of that English confederation of poets. Um, but uh, I think it was the uh, South African poet called Max Bornday. Uh, but anyway, um, in, we, we, we swapped poems. Uh, I played, or did my best to play to him, music that wasn't recorded, uh, and I offered, of course, to teach him to read music in a thorough and uh, consecutive way. But he, re he rejected that because he didn't really want to have his uh, appreciation of the music, his reception of it, um, interfered with, I think, by any technical concerns, and he never did um, learn it in that way. And I can't criticize him because he made such a good use of what he did know about music. He wasn't above making an occasional mistake, by the way. And one or two of those are in, embedded in the poem, so we won't go into that. <laughs> <laughs> and it was, I believe, the basis of his mastery of so many subjects then made him appear uh, a rather dauntingly 
learned and even sometimes remote uh, person to people reading his poems. One thing that was referred to earlier today was the power of his, um, his titles. And I have a feeling that it was the titles that were the key to many of his poems and that they bred the words that came below those titles. And in some cases, two different words which were later substituted. For example, um, while we were swapping poems and things like that, he wrote a poem about uh, St. Simeon Stylites, the um, saint, as you will recall, who uh, took up residence on top, on a platform on top of a pole and stayed there for the rest of his life. Um, of course, that made him a very significant figure in the church and uh, <laughs> a truly worthy saint. <laughs> but uh, what I was, I didn't like the poem, I, I must say. I thought it got very knotty towards the end. But I was amazed some years later to find the same title but a different poem below it. Maybe he'd taken notice of my disapproval, but more likely he had arrived at himself at, at a new way of, of looking what the uh, potential of that title was. Now, there's two uh, contrasts I'd like to draw. Peter liked to project himself as a person of no physical capacity. Uh, that is, in the sense of being handy with tools, or, or, and he never learned, and quite deliberately never learned to drive a car because he was, he much preferred being driven everywhere, <laughs> through Europe by other willing people. And of course, as you can imagine, they were quite willing to do it because they got the benefit of, of his, um, of his conversation and ideas. Um, he was also a person easily startled by what you might call common uh, occurrences. And I'm not saying that to belittle him. Um, I still recall with some pleasure, uh, a very affectionate pleasure, um, his arrival in London. And I must confess, if expatriate um, Australian people uh, under uh, some sort of uh, disapproval that it was I who principally got him to go to England and turn his back on his native country. Uh, but of course he didn't really turn his back on it. And it was the best place for him to go for a simple practical reason that there were so many magazines and other uh, organizations that could pay him those fees which we had uh, outlined for us earlier today, and there was nothing like that in Brisbane. And I won't go into talking about <laughs> Brisbane. I don't want to seem ungrateful to its uh, very few exam examples of, of, of help. <laughs> but Peter, for example, uh, arrived in London in a rather disheveled state. He had two cheap um, suitcases, 
One of them had dirty clothes, which is fair enough after a long journey. Eight weeks it was in, in his case on the boat. Uh, and in the other, only a fairly large wooden elephant from Colombia. Uh, beyond that, he had about, I would say, 26 pounds, maybe 25. That was his worldly goods for arriving in London. But worse still, uh, in terms of uh, his, uh, uh, well, his ability to uh, have any uh, monetary resources, he, did I do that? Um, his was that he had fallen into the clutches of one of the many uh, tricksters that exist in a big city for a boy from the uh, from the provinces, um, and that was a first-class uh, hair stylist um, in uh, a quite smart part of London. Peter had somehow thought he would like to have a Ah, uh, it is from here. Uh, a haircut after his long journey. And he went in, and of course this was some hair uh, app apparatchik who was on the royal list of preferences. And he gave him every possible uh, treatment that a, a hair cut uh, could embody. And... Peter ended up paying what was then the extraordinarily large sum of £25, <laughs> which was almost all that he had in the world. So, and I remember being at um, 42 Cleveland Square, as I often was over the years, and pressing the button, getting no response, and Peter rushed into view. He'd just been the victim of a, of a bank uh, fraud uh, by a person standing him beside him, behind him at the ATM and then pretending to have uh, picked up uh, what they, the person assumed was one of Peter's notes. Um, and then while he was occupied looking at that, they were able to get uh, the full details of his uh, bank, uh, tr the means by which he was getting money out of the ATM, and he lost everything that was in the bank at that time. So, on the other hand, um, it would be wrong not to allow that beside the very calm and sometimes quite Olympian um, detachment and serenity and feeling of complete uh, accomplishment that comes from his poems, um, there was in him also a, a fairly violent person. That could happen. Um, I had experience of two of those occasions and I'll just finish with, with them. Um, one was when um, he had, oh well, I'll just explain that we had two girl, we had girlfriends. One of them in um, Peter's case was uh, Jill, 
uh, Neville, and they lived on a, a houseboat called the Mary Purr off Chelsea Embankment. Um, and, well, this particular night, uh, uh, j just for entertainment, I'll add that, that their neighbour was the Viscount St Albans, who considered himself uh, an authority on canal boats and who fired a culverin at uh, dusk every evening in honour of the Festival of Britain. <laughs> but they, oh, and the girls, uh, Jill and Yolande, which used to, um, used to uh, darn his socks for a, uh, the sum of a pound a pair. Uh, anyway, um, the, on this evening, there'd been a major altercation of Peter with whoever was the appropriate person to have that altercation with, and you can work that out. Um, and one of the people, not Peter, ended up in the Thames. <laughs> and Peter himself then strode out in such a state of fury that he marched straight into a car. Now, later that evening, or that night, I was asleep in the Belsize Park flat where we had wonderful orange um, decorations from the mould on the walls uh, and from the damp of the uh, place. And uh, there was a knock about three o'clock. I woke up with a start. And there was a police constable at the door asking me if I knew Peter Porter. And I thought, God, what's he going to say? But he was in hospital. He'd, he'd given himself a sufficiently bad encounter with the car to need to go to hospital. And at least that told me where he was to be found the next morning because it wasn't serious enough to go immediately. And uh, that was one of the occasions, and this one is the last, um, um, was when I was finishing off my uh, PhD on uh, an aspect of Venetian opera, and I was doing it in their flat, and Peter was away somewhere, probably on tour with his poems, and he, uh, well, anyway, I will telescope that to the point where it won't mean anything unless you already know the story, but uh, it was a case where somebody, in fact, uh, dear Janice, um, was um, depressed and I did my best to comfort her, but I was probably one of the last people to see her alive before she took her own life, and that was very sad and and something that uh, I don't want to make too much of now. But um, that was Peter, the, uh, the animated, fiery um, doer. And I present him as an alternative to that of the stately um, and in control poet. Thank you. Thanks, Roger. Um, I'll now turn to Morag um, to share some of her memories of uh, 
conversations and correspondences with, with Peter. And I hope this will become a conversation yes, too. Um, thank you very much, everyone, for coming. It's a real privilege to be here and to be here with you, Christine and Catherine. And oh, I can't do names. <laughs> Jane, hello, Jane. <laughs> is, is a real privilege. One of the things that's most um, gratifying about it is the way we cross-hatch uh, experiences tumbling on top of one another. And I was struck by... Peter of the 25-pound haircut. Um, and um, I think probably late 90s, I had a series of photographs taken of Peter by a professional photographer because I wanted to use some in the magazine. Here they are. Um, that's my favourite. That's, that's your back street, Evan, down from your flat there. Um, I think it looks like Colin And that one. And... That one, which doesn't look at all like him, I don't think. And, and that very, very professional. But I then got a letter from him that said this. This is the 25-pound haircut person. Thank you for the handsome photographs, bracket. The adjective belongs to the pictures, not to the man. I hadn't shaved that morning when they were taken. I don't know why he knew they were coming. <laughs> I hadn't shaved that morning when they were taken, which adds to the general air of dishevelment. But some of them are pleasing, and I find that I can even recon my, reconcile myself to the image they present. Of course, somewhere inside me, I'm still the slim, dark, doe-eyed boy I was when I left Brisbane. But he's long since buried. However, he expects other people to seek him among the ruins. <laughs> and the other bit of crossover, uh, Roger... I can't remember whether Peter and I talked about this. We probably did. When I was in grade six at school, my sixth year and 13 years in a convent, um, my very inspired English teacher asked me what I would like for a present, uh, a prize, you know, at the end of the year. So I asked if I could have the complete works of W.E. Johns, which they gave me. <laughs> I've, I've never forgot. I still talk to that English teacher. And so instead of getting Hillary of the Upper Fourth, I got Biggles. Again, circling back to something Chris said this morning, quoting Peter, uh, love of life's a shameless zest persisting still. Um, and, no, no, that, that will do. My experience of, of Peter Porter, both meeting him, reading him and publishing him, um, was like a series of endless epiphanies. And I think I piggybacked on those. Um, it had something to do with his poet's way of precisely noticing everything in the world that we happened to be in front of at the time or just he had a way of, of turning it into something of both physical noticing and a metaphysical noticing so it would expand out. Uh, and so being in his company was, as you say, Chris, it was a bit like swerving to happiness all the time. I didn't ever have to go through the things that Peter did. Um, and I knew because I'd been reading him for years. I knew all of that, but his company was... Uh, it was serious company. When you were saying he was a serious poet, it, it was, but it was... You always came away um, enlivened somehow, and that was just always true. And it had to do with the way he could see... And I, it's true, we didn't talk about poetry. I mean, music's much more important to me than anything. My mother was a musician. My father was a Highland Scot who used to break records over his knee. So it was nice to talk to people that actually appreciated music. Um, 
We met in 1994 at the Adelaide Writers' Festival, and I'm a fairly diffident publisher, but I thought, okay, this is the thing I've got to do. I've got to walk up to this man I've never met, who I've been reading for years, and ask him if I can publish some of his poems. We had a connection because I'd been taught for many years by, by Peter Steele, who I think I met in 1962, and I'd read Peter's work on Peter Porter, and he talked to him and me a lot, so that, that was a bit of a prompt, and I thought I can, I can use that by way of, of an introduction, and I'll go up and I'll ask if I can publish his poems, and that'll be the end of that. Um, so we started talking, I think it was about two o'clock, and Peter, you were having dinner at your place that night, so we kept on talking, and then we walked up to the up the hill to your place. I think Anna was playing the piano in, in the front. Is there a, was there a piano as you would walk into the house? Was it Picasso? <laughs> yeah, well, she was percussing away there, and we kept on talking, and that was well, that was the beginning of what I'll call. Um, a professional friendship, and I mean that in this way. I mean, our friendship was mediated by the fact that he wrote poetry and I published. So I had many, 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 many exchanges. Um, he was very precise about how he wanted it to be. I think, I think we only ever made one mistake. He made some, I'll tell you about those. But I think once, I got a letter about two months after we'd published a sequence of poems, and he said, it doesn't really matter but actually, I did indent that stanza and you didn't do the indentation. So, actually, I love that um, because I like doing a professional job. He was a professional poet. That's what I should have, uh, I should have picked up. Um, lots and lots of things to say. We, I probably only met Peter maybe 10, 15 times in the course of, of that, that well, my life and, and his. Always... Um, it was like a conversation that hadn't stopped, that just you know, picked up and went on. Um, and like all of us, started in the museum tavern probably and then wandered. I've never seen the ground floor and the upstairs floors of the British Museum with more precise eyes. I loved doing that. Um, and we talked. And postcards from Peter would always be postcards of a church that I should visit. I don't go to Rome. I'm too Catholic. There are too many men clerics there. But I know Rome from Peter's postcards. But Florence I could get to, uh, and I, I was sort of sent around Florence effectively to look at the places that, um, that he liked. So we talk about that. And, oh, look, so many things I could, I could, I could say. Um, there was one wonderful occasion in Melbourne, and this is part of being, being, it's being a professional friendship. I'm not a poet, never have been, have no pretensions to being, but I love, I love watching people who do what they do well. I'm married to a professional philosopher. I've spent my life listening to abstract conversation. And so, two occasions. One occasion in, in London, I had lunch with Peter Porter, who I knew very well, and Peter Rose, whom I know very well. Um, and I will say, I think I said five things in the course of four hours. It was fascinating. They are just watching these two, not exactly transformed personalities, but just going at it. Then there's another occasion at my place or our place in, in Melbourne when Christine, thank God, graced us with her company and my husband Frank and me and there were five Peters. There was Peter Goldsworthy, Peter Porter, um, 
Peter Rose, uh, Peter Craven, who have I left off? Peter Steele, that's right. Christine, thank God, at some point said, could I have a whiskey, please? Frank has never forgotten that, (laughs) Christine. Um, Again, a conversation of of poets that it was was just a pleasure to be able to observe, really, um, to see how... I love watching the nuts and bolts of how people work professionally. But beyond that, um, there were so many, so many things that made my life richer and, and deeper. And the conversation would go anyway. I mean, I, I can't recreate the conversation for you, but I can, I can just read you a little tiny bit, and I'll finish with this, Adrian. There's many more things to say. This is a letter oh, from 1997. Um, uh, it, it moves all round the place, but this bit, and forgive the opening part of this, Christine, it's just very funny. My, our bedroom has died. Out. Brackets. That's a nice mistake. M-Y-S-T-A-K. I meant dried out. <laughs> <laughs> because the builder has paid us some compensation for damage, even if not the full amount. But the building above us is still not finished and we've had noise at various levels of bearableness for over six months. I do find it hard to work with their interruptions, though I'd be reluctant to not deny some, <laughs> some personal tilt to idleness as well. Christine's working very hard now that she's begun full-time. It's her clinic and hospital in Essex. It's amusing that the two places she works in, Basildon and, how do I say, Billericay? Billariki, Billariki, okay, have two of the worst Tory MPs in the House. Um, We're all hoping that Major and his government are on the rocks, but we have few illusions about Blair. Now, this is 1997, for few illusions about Blair. Still, the departure of the Conservatives should have the effect which Lansing a boil has, but then we wait for the build-up of a different kind of pus. However, as a friend has remarked the other day, Blair and his comrades and the left wing of the Tories is the most we can expect by way of hope or amelioration in these dark reaches of late capitalism. At least Australia isn't suffering the insult we in Britain are being offered by our masters mixing the stalest tags of coercive Christianity into their right-wing threats. Now, that's, that was just in the middle of one letter about 50 million other things. Um, that's enough. There are so many other things I'm sure we'll say together. Thanks, Morag. <laughs> Thank you. And, and now to Darlene. Oh, gosh, I haven't got that much to say, but, I mean, that was like a conversation with Peter that letter. He would just jump from one thing to another. The world would expand at a tiny little pub table in a dark room and suddenly so much information just poured in and it was never, never a dull moment with Peter. And time would just disappear. We'd have, you know, as everybody said, lunches went on forever. I must have been a goody-goody because I never ended up at Brown's for dinner. (laughs) No, it must be because we're goody-goody females. Um, But the first time that I met Peter, I was really very nervous because I knew he was a great poet and I thought, oh, you know, why is he bothering to talk to me? I was interviewing him for Arthur Boyd. And the first thing he said to me, he put me at my ease. He said, "Um, I suffer from 
uncertainty because of my name. It's so silly. How can I be a tragic poet with a name like Peter Porter? And um, it was his lovely sort of um, wit and, uh, you know, that Australian sort of uh, humour that, um, that he carried with him, I think, right through his life. Um, uh, but, yes, he did. He, had, he loved London. He loved the fact that there was so much there for him to, to draw on. What did somebody say today? A great city to sack. And um, I think that uh, he, I don't think he would ever have wanted to leave London, ever. But he liked coming home, didn't he? I think so. Um, so after that, um, the next time I saw him, he'd put me at my ease the first time. And then he did it again. We met... Um, uh, we talked about Arthur for a couple of years and he, we talked about people more than poetry because uh, why people behave the way they do and how he saw the, the structure of the Boyd family and, and the paintings and how he'd done four collaborations with Arthur Boyd, which more, more collaborations than Arthur had ever done with anyone. But in fact, they weren't collaborations because... Um, they were such different people. Arthur didn't say anything. He didn't know what to do with words. Um, and all of his feeling went into his painting. And Peter, of course, as you know, um, was the master of them. And he, he um, sort of came up against a brick wall with Arthur. To, and he said, I, he was... He said, I'm very um, chilly about this. I see Arthur as a disembodied talent. Um, and, he, and he liked the Wimmera paintings and he liked the, the uh, Shoalhaven. But he once said I, uh, that there's uh, the other important aspect to great beauty is great power. And I think he would have seen that in Nebuchadnezzar and, and in Mars. He did four books, Mars, Narcissus, uh, the Lady in the Unicorn, and, uh, yes, thank you, Jonah. And um, Peter would write the poetry, and then he'd give Arthur a brief on what it was all about. And then uh, Peter said, believed, and I, he was totally right, that Arthur would just take one image or something out of that story that he liked, and then he would impose his obsessions on it and use his iconography around that. And Peter and the publisher would receive this delta of images. And um, he said, we packed them in like a Spanish omelette. We had no idea what went with any poem. Um, but it, uh, most of the critics liked it. So, you know, it obviously made sense to someone. Did he have a, win did he have a whinge to you about the fact that... Um, Arthur could get endless prints out of this particular enterprise yes, he and, did. and get a lot of money for them and Peter would he get did, one. He did like having a whinge about money quite often, didn't he? <laughs> but, you know, fair dues, you know, well, it's no, pretty no, tough. Um, yes, yeah, so that was, that was in the back of his mind sometimes. But um, anyway, so the second time I met him and still interviewing him, and it was, this was quite an upmarket little bar in um, Covent Garden. We had a pizza the first time, of course, in Paddington, pizza in Paddington, and an upmarket little bar, and um, it was sort of Victorian, bentwood chairs and um, potted palms, and, 
and black and white tiles. And I turned around to get something from my bag and swung too hard. And there was a huge pot plant with an asper in it or something. And it came soaring across this rather smart bar with all these rather smart people. And I saw a man with a martini just taking a little sort of clod of earth from his... <laughs> and you can imagine the embarrassment. And, you know, I didn't know Peter very well. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, and apologising to the waiters who were mopping it all up. And Peter didn't miss a beat. He just totally ignored it and uh, went on with the conversation. You know, hardly anything stopped a conversation. <laughs> um, anyway, I've got other things to say, but let's... Oh, I was just thinking about embarrassing my, mine. Um, I took Peter to lunch once, sort of payback, really, uh, in St Kilda in Melbourne um, at Ronnie D'Astasio's, which is a bit of a Melbourne icon restaurant. And I had roast lamb and he had roast lamb and he manfully finished it. No, he didn't quite. He left some on his plate. Although it's an Italian restaurant, they're very Frenchified in the, in the amount that they cook the lamb, so it's bloody and pink and very French. He hated it. But what I really loved is that about ten minutes after, as we walked up the street, he said, I really can't stand lamb done like that, you know? <laughs> well, he, he, he used to say to me, um, you know, it's not the food, it's just the, the excuse to have the wine. <laughs> Yes, and if anybody would like to join in this conversation, please feel free. Um, uh, your story about him making fun of his own name reminded me of um, a after he died. I was on the, on the train from Cambridge to London to MC the memorial event for Peter at, um, at the Australian High Commission. And in... The, the, the cover of one of his books, he'd signed it to me and put, the good things continue. And I wondered if that was a quote or just a, a, an a Peter aphorism or what it was. And so I was trying to Google on the train whether this was a line from a Porter poem that I didn't know. And so, you know, I, I stuck in Porter and whatever. And what came up was an advert for Porter's Old Stout. And I, and I thought I was channeling Peter. I thought, I thought how much he'd love that. <clears throat> yes. Well, you know that uh, his family, the Porters, uh, thank you, actually were brewers and did produce ale. And they were rather gentrified folk with... Uh, mares and so on among them, uh, not at all the um, down-at-heel people that he sometimes liked to present them as being. He was the one who he felt he was the orphan of the family and was uh, somehow below the, um, the monetary level exercised by these people who had been, um, had been uh, serious citizens of Brisbane. Uh, he was... Um, he was very open to expanding his knowledge of uh, all the sorts of things that we've been discussing, but he could also take in knowledge from what you might have thought were 
things in which he didn't have much interest and indeed didn't have much interest. For example, horse racing. His father was a keen um, better on, on horse racing and uh, Peter must have uh, almost unconsciously picked this up from him uh, so that when the Queen uh, bestowed on him the Queen's Medal for Poetry and he was told, oh, well, just go in quietly and when she gives it to you, don't expect to be more than a couple of minutes because she really won't have anything to say to you. But between the two of them, with him talking about horse racing, in which she was intensely interested, and, and her knowing, to her credit, a great deal about the floods of Brisbane in the 1890s, um, they were causing the uh, flunkies of the court to look at their... Because they, they had a conversation lasting something like half an hour, <laughs> which was unprecedented. Trust Peter. <laughs> it's a wonder they didn't have lunch. <laughs> he always said, I'm, I'm a gentleman who, who likes to lunch. Um, but I, uh, I, I wrote down um, something from Peter's uh, work today when I read the, the um, article about Clive James in the Australian. I don't know if anyone saw that. Clive wants his ashes scattered, uh, scattered in Sydney Harbour and talking about how Peter liked to come home and... Uh, this uh, came to mind. I moved on. I live in London. I've grown quite mannerly, but death will put me on the tram to Annalee. And I'll look out for the familiar sign on the shop, Bushel's Blue Label. I'll have got my stop. And um, I asked him once what he would like his epitaph to be, and he said, last to leave. <laughs> <laughs> And then um, I got a letter from him. I, he was saying, oh, we're, we're planning lots of celebrations for my 80th birthday. I don't feel a day over 79. <laughs> yeah. Darlene, I wanted to ask you uh, the story in the Boyd biography that you tell about um, Peter saying when he first met Arthur that he... That, that Arthur might think that he was a bit of a literary loudmouth because he'd been uh, talking quite volubly about why Michelangelo was such a bad artist. And I wondered if Peter had <clears throat> vouchsafed to you why he thought Michelangelo was a bad artist. No, he didn't. I didn't, I didn't bother to ask. We were always discussing Australian painters and... I remember once he said, oh, Arthur didn't make a big deal out of being Australian in London, but Sid used to get up and spray himself with, with uh, Australian smells every morning. <laughs> yes. uh, he was uh, a person who, who came up with very surprising dislikes. Um, you, had, you saw that list before, and... Uh, T.S. Eliot led all the rest. Um, but he also really strongly disapproved of, of Yeats. Uh, he agreed that Yeats was a very fine poet or that his, his accomplishment or his achievement was considerable. But the, um, the way that uh, Yeats presented himself, he thought, was utterly deplorable. 
and he would never like the idea of encouraging any poet to behave in a similar manner. I was listening to the wonderful uh, conversations, uh, like the conversation that you were, you were uh, privileged to with um, Peter Rosen, uh, with Clive James. Uh, has anybody heard these? There's yes. six. Oh, of course you have. Um, but um, and now I've forgotten what I was going to say. What were we talking about? Oh, yes, well, yes, in, in this, and I was really surprised because he'd never mention it, but Pope is his great. Yes, yes. His, his great Pope, yeah, yeah. You know, he loved Pope. I was once present at dinner with Peter and Victor and Seth and Antonio Byatt, and it's tested in his great memory. At one stage of the, at one stage of the evening, he corrected Vikram on a point of positive. And of course, Vikram did all his first work on Pope, but Peter was right and then said, and then before dinner had ended, he'd given Antonio the careful number for a Mozart. <laughs> but I asked Peter when I visited in London if he could remember the first time we met. And he said, yes, of course I do. I said, it was the Abelsmith Theatre, 1974. And he said, yes, you asked a complicated, smart-ass question. <laughs> John Ashbury, the tennis court oath. And I thought, oh, I said, would you like to be friends? <laughs> I know, he was talking to me about um, a year or so before he died about, you know, not being afraid of losing his memory. And in the same breath, in one sentence, he'd managed to quote Beckett, Shakespeare, Wallace Crabbe and Martin Amos, you know, perfectly. The sentence was a long one. <laughs> Something, Chris, you wrote about Peter Steele, that his mind was a dulcet Google. Um, uh, very, very much what, what Peter Porter's mind was. But um, I've, I've listened to those tapes with, with Clive, which are wonderful, but there's such... I mean, there was a very performative aspect to Peter, but I, I can remember conversations where the performative just dropped away. I remember working, walking from Peter Express to somewhere else, and he started for the first time I'd ever heard him talking about his family in Brisbane and his father, and the streetscapes, and I wish I'd done this. I said, stop now, and I'll go and buy a tape recorder and give it to you. I, n I never did it. I regret not doing that. It was, it was one of those marvellously, not intimate, but um, self-revelatory, vulnerable conversations that had none of the performative aspects. But the performative was wonderful. I wouldn't have missed that for the world. And I'll just tell you one story. Um, I went, I've never gone on a literary pilgrimage in my life, but... I did go down to Blythborough to drag my husband and our best man down there in 2012 to go to the church. I don't know how many of you know of the angel in Blythborough Church. It's, it's one of my favourite poems. And Peter's got a line in it about the angels who, who are sort of pockmarked. Um, I think he says the Cromwell peppered them, that Cromwell's troops were supposed to have been quartered in there. Now, in the foyer, um, good Anglican church, they've got all the details in the history and explains that Cromwell's troops were there, but no damage was done, and actually it was Beetle that did this, and I was so delighted to have caught Peter out on something. So I wrote it all down, and we were in, in, I think we were staying in Cambridge at the time, got back to Cambridge the next day, sort of still pulsing, thinking, bugger you for being dead. I, you know, I want to, want to ring you up and say, you got that one wrong. Um, and I'm walking down the street, and outside Sainsbury's is a very large figure in a jumper that I recognised, and I thought... My God, it's Les Murray. 
So, I mean, wicked of me. I'm sorry, Peter. I couldn't resist. I said, Les, I found something Peter Reporter got wrong in a poem. And Les said he was never good on detail. Just a very small uh, uh, addition to that story. Um, and it relates to the large poet that was referred to possibly earlier. <laughs> yes, in the jumper. But uh, I have been told uh, by sources I won't name how, uh, and if I think they were actually Peter, um, when, uh, when Les Murray was staying with the, uh, the boarders, um, on at least one occasion, um, his very large trousers, spare, uh, spare set of trousers, were hanging up in the cupboard. And um, uh, the delightful Catherine and the delightful Jane Porter uh, each occupied one of the legs and, and danced their way around the room. <laughs> and there's just one little thing I could add, which is about Porter's ingenuity and in our alliance with mine, I, I must admit, we were staying in um, Notting Hill when it was deeply unfashionable. It's not now. Um, and our French um, landlady always insisted on having the rent at the beginning of the week. We went to, with Jill Neville to the um, Albrecht Festival, one of the very early ones, and we spent so much of what little money we had on buying tickets there. But uh, when we came back, we realised we would be unable to meet the deadline uh, if it was imposed on us, uh, and that would not be received well by our French la landlady. Maybe that was why Peter didn't like the French. Um, but uh, what we realised we had to do was to find a flat which was uh, under the scheme of being paid for at the end of the week. We could then have some hope of having enough money to pay for it. And we found one at, at Belsize Park, which I've mentioned before as having these lovely orange um, decorations in mould. Um, and Peter and I were both part of the uh, scene in the great, um, the great uh, fogs of the 1950s. And there was one particular one where we were in a in the old Sadler's Wells Theatre, watching an opera, and uh, suddenly we realised you couldn't see the stage anymore because of it. Um, and somehow we, having to adjourn, we went to some place where we might have been served a drink or two, and on the way home, uh, this was raised for me, I think it was by Peter's uh, reference to Peter, uh, to Peter Porter, being on all fours uh, to find his way somewhere. And that's what happened in the, when we tried to find our way back to Belsize Park. Peter was on all fours as he tried to find where the stairs were going downstairs. And he really wasn't steady enough 
to have remained upright. So it was resourceful. On that note, I'm afraid <laughs> we've run out of time, though I know the conversation could go on and on. But I, uh, I'm afraid time's run out, and it's time to thank Roger Cavell, Darlene Bungay, and Morag Fraser. I'm going to um, keep talking um, as people move, if you wish to, um, from the dais, because we are getting towards the end of the day. Um, I'm Margie Byrne. I'm the Assistant Director General responsible for <laughs> Australian collections. Um, and I've been one of the people in the library who's had a small uh, role in getting Peter's papers into the library. My whole career I've worked with um, Australian Special Collections in several institutions and in one library where it wasn't working out so well, my boss said to me, um, because there were some strange um, long existing relationships amongst other staff there, you know, if you don't like um, this library, we can always put you in the general reference library and no more horrifying thing could be said to me because whatever difficulties I might have been having in this, in this library with some of my colleagues, the thought of general reference was just awful because for me, what these kind of libraries are about are about relationships. Relationships with the creators of the collections at their heart and all the ripples that flow from them, and then, of course, also relationships with the users who are drawn to the libraries because of those collections for whatever their purpose, and haven't we seen it today? Um, I love nothing more than seeing beautifully neat stacks, such as the one you saw in Marie Louise's photo today, because I've worked in some shockers, um, and I, for my sins, I've also had more responsibility for stacks than I would care to, but I, I know that I have always known that those orderly boxes represent the lives of people. And we who make order, uh, sometimes out of chaos, um, and transform it into those um, bland, uniform cardboard boxes must never forget that. And today, um, I want to say that actually this is the second presentation I've been in uh, around um, the families of creators because last night I was at the premiere of Letters to Lindy having Lindy Chamberlain in the audience of the play um, about her um, experience since the death of Azaria and I just sat there thinking what can this mean for her to be in this audience? It's a play taken from archives boxes. Um, those archives boxes are the persistent presence of someone who is a loved father and a loved husband. And I really want to acknowledge the great generosity of Peter's family in coming today and to think that it must have been a joyous day for you in many ways, but it must have also touched it, your memories um, and your hearts. And so I want to acknowledge your great generosity in joining us. I think um, if I played any role in getting Peter's papers to the library, it was at a dinner, I think in 2001, and trying to say that 
in the British Library, you'll be one of hundreds of great poets. Here at the National Library, you'll be at the top. <laughs> Australia is where you belong. <laughs> and in my typically subtle way. Um, and I think today what we have seen is Australia is the right home for Peter's papers because um, he, he was... His, Australia was so much a central part of his life. I'm not sure whether... Um, Christine and Catherine always thought that because um, your relationship with the National Library, of course, um, could not be a close one, um, nor Jane's for that matter, despite her long um, residence in Australia. So we really are enormously grateful to you that um, you supported and encouraged and did whatever else you did to make that come to pass and, and then really um, have graced us with your presence today. And the final... Um, debt of gratitude is to Christine, who's um, accepted an invitation to talk to us. So please welcome Christine. Thank you. Well, seeing everybody from a different angle. Um, I'm, I'm not going to do very much, really. I think that what I'd really like to do is to thank the library. <laughs> and thank all the people that I've had contact with um, and thank them for over the last perhaps four years that we've had mainly email contact <laughs> with um, that it's been, a, how can I say, a really easy relationship and a really nice relationship. And when things have been perhaps very complex, um, you've been very patient in, you know, emailing me back with, good explanations of what you wanted and perhaps how I should do things and I've really appreciated that. Um, perhaps first of all to also thank the library for housing Peter's archive um, and it was obviously good to see it here but I'd like to thank um, Anne-Marie, Marie-Louise, <laughs> Catherine Favella, Margie Byrne, Hang on, I've got a list here. <laughs> Kylie Scope and Robin Holmes, all of whom, and Lindsay. Lindsay's mostly been contacting Jane, but who work really hard. And I think what this afternoon, we've, uh, yesterday, this afternoon, yes? When did we actually, I'm sorry, jet lag. <laughs> yesterday, we came to the library for two hours and Kylie very carefully showed us elements of the archive, got out papers and photographs. And that was very moving. And one got the sense of how intricate and subtle um, the care of somebody's work is. You know, how, what great care the library takes of people's work. And I can understand, I mean, it, it suddenly struck me. I mean, I had two thoughts which were quite opposing. One was, I was actually, as one does, I was talking to Peter in my mind saying, huh, so you're in a lot of little boxes. <laughs> and I thought, I wonder if you knew that this is what would happen, because I don't think he did, really. Um, he just thought um, what he wanted when the library, when um, Claire Drysdale came to, got in touch and came to see him, was it was a place. He needed a place for his archive. 
He needed a home. And he did at that time actually know he was dying. So it was actually imperative. But he didn't, he didn't rush at it, as I think, um, was it Marjorie you said? Yeah, Mary Louise said that he didn't rush at it. He did give it a lot of thought. Um, and he didn't necessarily share what that was with me. Um, because I felt that how can you help somebody except simply by being there, gather together, you know, 70 years of a working life, a very rich life, um, and not just a working life, a personal life, with so many friends and so many things that had happened to him. Um, I felt that I, I could just, in a sense, be there. I couldn't understand or really expect to what his life was really about. And I think the other person to thank, uh, there are two things. Marie-Louise, when she came, she said she took four days. In my mind, I thought, until she said that today, it was two weeks. <laughs> I thought she had taken two weeks. I hadn't realized it was two days. And the other thing is, the, the actually intense um, time that Nicholas Pounder came, you know, when he came. He came for 19 days and every day. Was it every day? I don't think, did you have one Sunday or one Sunday? You went to a market. Yes. And um, that, that they worked intensely. I wasn't always there. Or, I was there most of the time because by that time Peter was very ill and he was not going to survive. He'd already survived past, a few months past the time the doctor said that he would die. So for him to do that, to go through in that intense way his entire life was an enormous strain. But it was also, sometimes it was, it was quite light and it was quite nice, especially at the end of the day when we could have a nice malt whiskey. <laughs> that was quite... Yes, it was winter. So, so you know, and, and I, I to, to come and, obviously I'd, I'd actually lived with all of this stuff for nearly 30 years, and, but I didn't know it in that sense. I had my own life and my own work, my own. So it was just there in a way, and I could see it being produced, you know, at the death. Um, but what I wanted to say about the library, my experience with the library, yesterday especially, was that it made me realise, it gave me a different view of a library, of a, an archive, in the sense that it felt um, that here was, in a sense, a nation's mind. That in all of these boxes, and all of these people, was the... the a nation's mind, and that Peter had a place in the archaeology and history and complexity of that nation. And I think he does belong here. Yes, very much so. You know, so I was, I was um, quite moved. So on the one hand, there was this kind of jokey thing, Peter, you're in little boxes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, little brown boxes. You, there was a song, do people remember, little boxes? Yeah, that's what it reminded me of. And on the other hand, there's the kind of depth uh, of knowledge and intensity 
and care with which the staff take care of things. But even after they go, historically and archaeologically, this living, visceral mind stays here. So that's what I wanted to say. So thank you all very much. Um, there is just one thing I'd like to do for me. Um, so please sort of indulge me. Um, and that is Peter's last poem, which I think, and this is just my opinion, um, is one of his greatest poems. Um, it's called Hermit Crab. It, in a way, has to do with Nicholas, but it also has to do uh, very. It's a very. It's a very personal poem. But you wouldn't always know that about Peter's poetry. But if you look at it carefully, you can actually see. I can see in many cases where the incidents where another kind of generation of his work, not necessarily the poetic things, the images, the metaphors, but actual lived experience has got into the poems. Um, and I think one of the lived experiences, obviously, was about his mother. But it was also, he was also interested in, who said, I mean, in nature, really. And here, in this poem, I think he's talking about about an experience of the Australian beach and the, and the Australian sea. Um, and it's called Hermit Crab. And he quite liked crabs and wrote about crabs quite a few times. Anyway, uh, the other thing I, I, I'll tell you about is that I believe the moments for this poem were born at his last Christmas with his daughters and with his grandchildren and his putative son-in-laws, where, <laughs> um, where, you know, they were there for his last Christmas. And then after that, there was the intensity of going through his work with Nicholas. And then um, he wrote this poem, and he got me to type it for him onto the computer which um, wasn't a usual thing he usually did. It, you know, he would have done it himself, but he was too weak, he couldn't do it. So he sat behind me. I'm, I'm no typist, really, not, not in the big thing, but he made me do it anyway. He, was, he could be very forceful. I think Roger's right. <laughs> you know, do it. Um, and the other thing is, I think it's, it's a cliché, but... It is a poem where um, my beginning is in my end. It's about that too. And it's a poem about, the poem, I think, elegiacally, is about gratitude. And it's, it's a gratitude, I think, to his mother. I think it's a memory of his mother that runs through this poem. And the other important thing, it was about if you like, having an internal home, having a home, that's what he wanted, and feel, to feel at home. That, um, I think, is what he found, and he tells us that in his poem, although it's quite a hard poem. <laughs> um, here we go. I have no new shell to retreat to. Having scanned the beach, it has never seemed so wide and such a temperament for the thundering ocean and watched the gulls hanging their banners of transformation across the sky. I used to believe that this shell I 
I soon must leave, was the only shell I have ever lived in. Perhaps I was remembering the glorious nature of the home I was introduced to when, I first, when first I looked about me and which protected me in ways I did not recognize. Sometimes I recall shells as a long symposium stretching in a clockwise aura, but always and ever shells upon the beach. How cold the beach and lonely, that last domain of lights remembering, without a home, one made of current comforts and loving faces, forgetting becomes impossible. And yet the silence of the beach, the missing sun, the time-tied stars show everything's forgotten and I can forget. And, and for me, this is a poem about letting go of life. And he does it so, with such dignity and grace and so elegiantly. That's all I really wanted to say. Thank you very much. Thank you.